The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Testing one, two, three. Does this voice work tonight? It seems to be okay for the moment. That was weird last night. I just, right out of the blocks, I started to lose my voice. I hadn't done anything unusual during the day or all week for that matter. And I started to lose it. And I think it's still a little weak, but I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Maybe it's, um, maybe I need to drink more water. Maybe I just need to drink more. <laughs> maybe that's it, which I'll have a chance to do tomorrow night as uh, we get ready for booze, brews, and bros tomorrow night. And Saturday night, I have a, uh, I've got a special idea that I'm working on that I'm, I'm anxious to surprise you all with. I think it'll be a lot of fun. It might not be. It might be just in my own head that it's going to be a good time. But um, I think uh, I think it will be a lot of fun. I know Scooter's going to like it if he ever shows up. Uh, but again, welcome to the show. We've got an interesting one for you tonight. Dr. Lori Nadell will be with us. She's a psychotherapist and a trauma specialist. We're going to talk about how to handle stress and anxiety from catastrophes and disasters, including the one that we're experiencing right now around the world. Dr. Nadell says that um, we actually have the tools within us through spiritual self-care and emotional first aid to help us deal with these things because these things do affect our health. Even if we don't catch the virus, the stress affects us. So we'll have that conversation with her in just a little bit. Be sure to swing by our YouTube page and give us a subscribe. I guess that's how you'd say it. Subscribe to the channel is the more direct way to say it. We want you to be part of our online community there. We've got a great bunch of people, and the numbers climb every day as far as our subscriptions, which we really appreciate. But the more people we have, the more noticed the videos and the discussions are. It's really all about the discussion. The video part of it's rather insignificant. It's about the interview. It's a great way to get these interviews out. Something in the neighborhood of 450 or 500 back episodes. Uh, I think there's over 1,000 or close to 1,000 total videos there. Um, but I think you can access about 450 back episodes or maybe even more. And those are all there for your viewing and listening enjoyment. There's no charge or anything for that. But if you do have the inclination to support the program, there is a way that you can do that. And it's our Patreon page. Just go to Patreon and look for Joha, J-O-H-A-W, and that will be our page. You can uh, offer a small monthly contribution to putting the show together, which helps Slick Eddie. It helps um, uh, you know, all the stuff we have to do to get this show out every night, and we do it almost every night now. I mean, if you add the booze, brews, and bros and Saturday night free-for-all, that's uh, pretty much six days a week at this point. Not that we'll do it that often always. But during this um, time of uh, social distancing and isolation and all that stuff, it's uh, it's a great way to uh, be social without actually being social. So we'll continue to do it for the short term. But again, you can support us on um, on Patreon. Um, also, uh, the podcast version of the show is available on all major podcast distribution platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And if you uh, listen to the show... Um, Particularly through uh, any of those platforms, you will see a link on there that's not not uh, connected to the Patreon, but it's connected to a, a separate podcast uh, support mechanism, which will also give you an opportunity to support the program. Again, not necessary, but if you're so inclined, we always appreciate the help, since we are no longer running 21 minutes an hour of commercial time. And that's because we think the show is, well, not we, I think the show is far better Uh without all, all that commercial, all those commercial breaks. Although it does make my job a little more difficult uh, talking a little bit more and without the breaks to uh, regroup every 10 minutes. 
But again, it does it does uh, help keep the flow consistent. Welcome to all our uh, chat folks. Good to have everybody in chat, both in the YouTube stream and on Twitch. Good to see everybody there. Looking forward to uh, doing some more with Twitch over the weekend as we add special custom emotes and other goodies that people can play with um, in the Twitch stream. So great place to be. Anyway, let's go to break and we'll get our guest on the phone. We'll talk tonight with Dr. Lori Nadell, psychotherapist and trauma specialist. And we're going to talk about how to handle stress and anxiety from catastrophe with emotional first aid and spiritual self-care. That's tonight on Beyond Reality. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the program. It's Beyond Reality. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson, and thank you for being with us tonight. We've got a very interesting discussion ahead of us. Our guest, Dr. Lori Nadell, is a psychotherapist and trauma specialist. We're going to talk about how to handle stress and anxiety and anxiety with emotional first aid and spiritual self-care. Lori, welcome to the program. Great to have you here with us tonight. Hey, great. Thank you so much for being here. So I have to ask you, you started out your professional career uh, as, a, as a journalist. First of all, how'd you get into that? And then how did you decide to transition out of it? Uh, well, I, I uh, became a journalist kind of by accident. I uh, started off uh, after I finished college in uh, England. I did my senior year abroad. And uh, I, I got a job with a, a television news agency that is uh, now part of uh, Reuters and the BBC. And uh, I kind of worked my way at the time. You know, the only entry-level jobs that women could get were as uh, newsroom secretaries. And I managed to work my way onto the writer's desk. And then from there, came back to the States and started working at ABC News, where I was the first woman writer hired because they were they were being sued by a women's rights group because oh, wow. they had no women writers at the time. Um, I spent a year there and uh, went to uh, South America where I was just planning on visiting a friend and ended up working for Newsweek and United Press International uh, as a field reporter. And so I kind of I I, I literally kind of fell into journalism uh, by accident and. Uh, then spent 10 years working for CBS News before um, I decided I wanted to write books for a living and uh, went back to school and changed careers. Um, after 20 years, it was literally 20 years of working in the news business, most of it working in TV newsrooms, I came to realize that people whose lives were shattered by these sudden violent events that we call breaking news, uh, that, that people would need some kind of specialized long-term support after uh, after an event like that. And so uh, when I went back to graduate school and started my practice in 1991, I had a focus on helping people dealing with uh, trauma and PTSD. Uh, so I've been doing that since 1991. You said you got involved in journalism as a bit of an accident, but it was an accident that lasted 20 years or so. Uh, there must have been something you did enjoy about it. What was that? Well, I loved it. Um, I, I I liked the uh, experience of 
meeting people, talking to people, doing research, uh, going out in the field. Um, I, I loved working in the newsroom. I liked working, uh, you know, with a team of people, a group of people, uh, to put the news out every day. Uh, I was trained originally to work uh, with film editors uh, who were documentary editors and producers. So I learned how to uh, edit and produce uh, news stories using news news film that used to get shipped in from all over the world in, uh, in film cans, and these kind of, you know, mesh, we call them grapefruit bags, you know, like you see in the supermarket. Mm-hmm. And uh, every every can of film had, uh, you know, had, had people's lives on it, had stories on it that uh, sometimes were coming from all kinds of, Parts of the world that that you wouldn't otherwise hear about Cambodia or uh, Togo in Africa or Indonesia or uh, parts of the Philippines or Argentina, and so you know, working in in international news in the era before the internet was absolutely fascinating because every day you were sitting kind of in the nerve center of information for the whole globe. And uh, and and I, I was so lucky. I got to work with amazing people. I've made lifelong friends, and uh, I really uh, really loved the experience of being in the business. Is is that how you um, got to know Dan Dan Rather? I know he's uh, written for you, wrote the forward for your book, and um, I know he's been involved in some of your work. Is that where you were introduced to him? Well, you know, I. <laughs> My my experience in Chile was very interesting because I was I was doing a story for Newsweek, and uh, I was supposed to find out how many people had disappeared since the uh, military junta came to power six months earlier, and uh, we were living in a state of siege with a curfew and nice. a secret police were pulling up to people's houses and people were disappearing and I was I was living with the family of a political prisoner, and uh, while I was interviewing uh, a source. Uh, was a lawyer uh, in Santiago, Chile. Uh, he got very angry, and he said that he hated Americans, and he hated reporters, and he especially hated Newsweek reporters. And at that point, he picked up the phone, and he called the head of the Air Force, and he informed on me that there was a Newsweek reporter asking nosy questions, and uh, and I was told that I, I should report to the general's office on uh, Monday. Fortunately, it was a Friday afternoon in February, which is summer in the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, the general had already gone to his beach house on the coast by helicopter. And so the secretary who answered the phone said, you know, have her come into the office at 8 o'clock in the morning on Monday. And my friends, of course, who I said they I was living with the family of a political prisoner, uh, they hid me until I could get a flight out of the country. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that harrowing experience, I became very active in human rights and uh, actually started a uh, committee for journalists' human rights at the Overseas Press Club and later uh, founded an organization known as the Committee to Protect Journalists. And at the time, I had uh, been working at CBS News, I guess, for about a year. And so I was able to connect with Dan and with Walter Conkite and to uh, persuade them uh, to join the board of this fledgling organization, which is now uh, a major human rights organization for journalists' rights around the world. Wow. So I met Dan. I met I met Dan. I went in as a kind of, you know, young, um, gutsy, probably politically naive uh, reporter who uh, just knew that I had this mission 
to try to get Don and Walter to join the board of this organization. Nobody knew who I was. I had absolutely no status in the company. Um, I was kind of working in a in an invisible department uh, that was not considered, you know, glamorous or prestigious. And uh, and I I walked in with this mission of persuading them to uh, to kind of join join this new group that was starting, and uh, I and and Dan I think uh, never forgot that, and we've we've managed to uh, stay in touch over the years. He narrated a documentary that I wrote about the World Trade Center Family Center, where I, I ran a program for teenagers whose fathers were killed in the World Trade Center. And you can find that documentary on the homepage of my website, which is laurienadel.com. I, um, you know, I've been involved in media, but not, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a reporter or a journalist, but I've been a radio host for a long time. And I've always been very, very respectful and a bit in awe of reporters who go to very dangerous places and risk their lives just to make sure a story is told. You'd be commended for that. I don't know how, how dangerous you realized it was when you went, but, man, um, I can't imagine being in that position. You must have really feared for your life. Uh, I, I totally feared for my life. Uh, I, I think, you know, there used to be this commercial where somebody was like, they, they just missed having, you know, a tree fall on their head, and then they were almost hit by a bus. And, and the reason that they kept escaping was because there was a guardian angel behind them mm-hmm. who kept kind of making sure that the tree didn't hit them and the car didn't get them. And I think I must have given my guardian angel a heart attack <laughs> because I went places I had absolutely no fear. And uh, I I took... Um, DC-3s into the middle of the jungle, and uh, I, I did all... I, I was an adventure reporter, primarily, uh, and and Peru at that time was, you know, it was not in any way developed, and the, aer- the airports didn't have radar, and, uh, you know, they, they, there, were no, there were no digital communications, so when you were... when you got off in, in, a, uh, in a village where there was a, a grass airstrip, I mean, you you were completely yeah. on your own, and you had to you had to find your way um, to food, clothing, and shelter. And the, the contact person who was supposed to help you sometimes hadn't been there for two years. So um, you know, I was I was I, I don't know if I was fearless, reckless, uh, naive, or um, I know that I was extremely lucky and uh, fortunate. And and I know that uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I know now. That my guardian angels were following me all the time, making sure that uh, I got back safely. Well, if nothing else, I mean, you were all those things. Plus, you were, you were very committed to your job and the task at hand. And again, you're to be commended for that. Um, but after doing it for a while, you started to you started to uh, be touched by the stories that you were reporting on and hearing during this time in journalism, and you started to see things a little differently. That's right. You know, I was never somebody and. There are people, uh, there were people certainly in some of the newsrooms that I worked with um, who could be very tough and who could make um, kind of cruel jokes uh, about some of the scenes that we saw. Um, I I always found that very painful, and people would tell me that I was too sensitive, you know, for the news business, which I probably was. But I think it's like people who work in a clinical setting. You, You develop a kind of professional and clinical ability to observe 
what needs to be done and to work under very tight deadlines to make sure that you get the best story uh, and you get the best possible pictures and that you write the best script so that it goes on the air and there's a certain precision to it. Um, And you work under very crowded, very noisy conditions. And I I found that extremely um, satisfying and challenging and, and just it, it was a lot of fun for a long period of time. And then um, I, I, I got pregnant and uh, was, was giving birth to a baby girl. And I found that, you know, as soon as I got pregnant, suddenly I wasn't looking at pictures. I was looking at real people. And uh, it was around that time that uh, we were sitting there one afternoon, and I was looking up, and there were maybe 10 or 12 monitors uh, all around the room. And in those days, you didn't have, uh, as I said, there were no cell phones. There There was no Internet. So we would get pictures coming in from all over the world by satellite, uh, by landline, by uh, couriers would bring them in, you know, from the airport. And I looked up and, you know, every single monitor had some kind of a disaster. There was a bombing on one, plane crash on another, uh, bodies being carried out of a building that had been collapsed, collapsed uh, that had collapsed. We had a volcano, and a Kilauea was uh, was was uh, exploding in Hawaii. We had uh, you know train derailments. I mean, it was just it was and it was just a normal day, and I think it's still kind of a normal day in a, a kind of global newsroom. But I remember looking up at all of all of those monitors and thinking, when God looks at us, um, His children, His creation, is this what God sees? Now, does God see, you know, the, the, the death, the destruction, the accidents, the bombings, the murders, the scenes of war? Um, does he look at us and go, gee, those people really, they're my children. Boy, have they really messed up this beautiful planet that I gave them. Um, it, it was this moment where, where things kind of crystallized for me, and I could really feel that kind of universal suffering that um, millions and millions of people go through every day. Um, in in on it, as part of the human journey, and I think that was the moment where I really felt called to try to find a way to contribute to healing uh, and to helping people whose lives were damaged by these big uh, sudden violent events that we call hard news or breaking news. You know, most people would uh, gravitate, I think, toward a financial assistance whereby they'd, they'd raise money, they'd, you know, they'd contrib- volunteer time for the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, whatever it happens to be. But you saw a, a different answer in all this. You recognized that people not only have financial hardships or, you know, trouble with food and shelter and these types of things, but there's an anxiety and a stress that comes from these catastrophic events. And that is what captured your imagination in a way, isn't it? Well, that captured my imagination, but also when I came back from Chile about a year later, um, I, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. Uh, when I would hear a truck, uh, you know, kind of go over a manhole cover, I would hear a car backing, backfiring, I hear a muffler kind of, you know, making that, that sound that mufflers used to make um, back in the day. Uh, I would I would wake up and I'd find myself underneath my bed and I'd be curled up in a oh, fetal wow. position. And, um, and it's what they call an, um, an, an exaggerated startle response. It's when you hear a sound and you just literally want to jump out of your own skin. Um, I, I had a, an idea of what it was, but of course uh, I, I had uh, 
I had done some stories about Vietnam veterans, and we were only just starting to understand how people who were coming out of uh, of very dangerous uh, war zones and uh, other kinds of situations uh, can be traumatized to the point that it it causes your body to react before you your mind has a chance to say, "Hey, it's okay, you're safe. Nobody nobody's coming after you." So um, I I did get diagnosed at that time and. Uh, went for some counseling, but it, the thing about PTSD and and you know now that I think you know billions of people around the world are going through this now with COVID nineteen, where we are are facing um, this amorphous invisible enemy, which is potentially fatal, and it hits young people and it hits old people, and um, it's kind of random and it's debilitating and. Um, even people who recover sometimes have permanent um, health issues as a result. Um, I, I think that it's really important to understand how serious post-traumatic stress is. And at the time, we had no information whatsoever. Uh, and that kind of moved me to to go in that direction when I decided to go back to school because I'd been living with it since my mid-20s. And there there are... From time to time, there will be a sudden noise or I'll see something on TV. Or now, um, you know, there are no street sounds. And the only sound that you'll hear in the afternoon is a siren, as an ambulance, you know, is heading off to, to kind of pick somebody up at home. And it, it, it causes chills to go down my spine because I remember what it was like to live in a country under a state of siege. And so it's it's a it's almost like your body your cells remember what it felt like, and your body re-experiences the original fear and helplessness that you felt. Even though in my case it's been over forty years ago, my body will still get that reaction. So PTSD is something that it's kind of like a retrovirus. You know, it's it, it's cellular, it's molecular. And um, and I think that many people will be dealing with the triggering effect of this for a long time to come. We're going to get into a lot more of that part of the discussion and that part of what you've learned in, in, in your work and how you've found ways to help people. But I need to ask you a little bit more about being a journalist, because I find this very interesting. Do you see the world differently after 20 years of being a journalist and a reporter? Compare your view of the world from the day you started that career path to the day you left it for doing the work you do now. Well, I like to say that and that's a great question. That being a journalist and being a therapist are very are very similar because we we have to listen very carefully, and our goal is to help people um, to open to open up, and very often to talk about things that they don't really want to talk about. Only the goal as a journalist is to publish um, the the conversation, and the goal as a therapist is is to create a safe space and to keep it private and confidential, and hopefully to be able to offer some insight or some tool or some intervention that can help the person who is sitting with me or or, or with with one of my colleagues um, to to kind of um, to heal or to grow or to recover from uh, some kind of a psychological wound state. And one more question. So, yeah, go ahead. You know, to, to go back to your question, so um, I, I do tend to see the world very often uh, 
through the eyes of, of my young journalist self. And um, I, I recently actually created a kind of exercise for myself where I could actually go back and step into what it was like to be a young reporter in my 20s because my, my younger self saw everything as new. And uh, I, I, as I said, I was an adventurer reporter, but the, the spirit of being an explorer is something that very often gets lost in our day-to-day life. And even now, when um, you know we're dealing with health challenges or dealing with you know the difficulties of lockdown, I, I remind myself that if I step into what 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 my 25 year old reporter self was like and ask you know how would she see the situation, um, there were many times that I traveled to places where I I wasn't safe, I didn't like the place, uh, people weren't friendly, it might have been dangerous. Um, I wished I, I wished I wasn't there. Um, I couldn't wait for it to be over. A lot of parallels to being in lockdown, I have to say. And if I look at the situation through the eyes of my young explorer self, and I can say, well, this is this this is another journey. And you can see, I can see every experience as if it was new. I try to approach every day as if it's new. Something something is going to happen that I didn't expect. And uh, I love uh, one of the indigenous healers who I interviewed for the five gifts who said, you know, that, that they, they live with the belief that you have to expect the unexpected. And so I think that journalism gave me that gift of expecting the unexpected. And, and, and when I remember it, when I remind myself of being able to see any situation as uh, through new eyes. Before we go to break, I have one more journalist journalism-related question, uh, and when we come back, we're going to get into some of this other stuff. Um, but I've been awfully frustrated with the state of journalism, and I don't blame the, the industry itself. The business model has changed significantly in the digital age, and it's making it almost well nearly impossible or completely impossible in some cases for newspapers to survive, for radio stations to survive, for even some television stations and networks to survive. So therefore, how the heck can they pay reporters to do the job they're supposed to do if they can't even keep the lights on? Having said all that, what is your opinion of the state of the media and uh, journalism uh, as we look at it today? You know, someone once asked me what Walter Cronkite would think of uh, the news today, and I'd say Walter would say, make sure you spell somebody's name right. I mean, I can't tell you how many um, basic reporting mistakes that um, I see and sometimes even read. Um, there, there's been a trend, as, as you know, and I, and I, in my own career, I saw that trend starting to happen um, in the 80s when the technology improved and we were able to get live pictures uh, from a scene of a major news story, but not necessarily facts or information to go with the pictures. And so we became much, uh, you know, television became much more picture-based or video-based. Um, and, and in general now, over the last certainly 10 or 15 years, um, there, there's been a trend towards opinion uh, rather than facts. 
And so the whole, um, you know, the, the modality, the, the model of journalism, which I was trained, is with the, you know, you as the reporter, you keep your opinions, uh, you, you just report the facts, right. and you keep your opinions and your reactions out of the story. And, and that's completely changed now. Everything is much more personal. It's much more opinion-based. Um, we have this whole phenomenon of cable news that didn't exist uh, you know, back in in the uh, you know when I started out, and um, and and I think that that the face of news has changed because of it, and people no longer know the difference between fact based reporting and opinion, and consequently there's a blurring of that line, and people think that opinions are facts, and I think that's something about the nature of how the industry has morphed over the years in print as well as uh in, in media. And, and and I think it can be it, it can be very dangerous. I agree and I and I uh particularly am troubled by the what you just pointed yeah. out that it's it's almost all opinion based right. and I don't even call it reporting. Uh it's almost a, it's it's a it's opinion based story driven as opposed to news reporting and that's very, very sad because it does uh it does not provide people with the information they need to make their own decisions or be informed uh, on the issues that they need to be informed on. We're talking with Dr. Lori Nadell tonight, and we're talking um, about her work um, as a psychotherapist, a trauma specialist, although you haven't done that really yet. We've been talking about her career as a journalist that preceded this. Her website is her name, com, and she's got books including The Five Gifts, Discovering Hope, Healing and Strength When Disaster Strikes. And Sixth Sense, Unlocking Your Ultimate Mind Power. Uh, Lori, let's talk about anxiety and stress a bit. Everybody uses those words, throws them around, but when it really boils down to the nuts and bolts of what we're talking about, what do we mean when we say something like acute stress? Well, you know, it's interesting because April, as we're coming to an end of April, to the end of April, April is Stress Awareness Month every year. And I think everybody knows what uh, everybody's aware of uh, of an extreme level of stress uh, over this past month. Uh, there are actually the stress means um, excuse me how the how the body responds to change. So if the phone rings and it's somebody offering you a great gig or it's uh, someone you want to hear from, uh, we we get we get a flood, a little burst of stress hormones, and it's called. U stress, meaning EU or healthy or pleasurable stress. Um, if it's somebody, if it's if it's a bill collector or if it's somebody uh, you don't want to hear from, uh, it's distress, uh, mean DIS, meaning unhealthy or unpleasant stress. And uh, we all know what what that's like because it's disturbing, and we get a surge of stress hormones, which which may be um, stronger than the U stress hormones. But at the same time, it's the, it's the stress response is the same. It's how the the nervous system reacts to change. Uh, we get like we get a little jolt from the sympathetic nervous system. So something happened, and we kind of go on on alert for a moment. Now with acute stress, um, this is what this this is what happens when the body is faced with a life and death situation. Uh, in which there is a sudden, unexpected loss of life uh, or threat to life. For example, it could be a near miss on the highway as you're on your way to work. Um, it could be uh, being close to somebody 
who has had a direct experience of having lost somebody or having escaped um, a dangerous situation. And there's also something called vicarious or trauma or VT, which is uh, the clinical description for uh, when we feel a, a flood of, of severe stress from being exposed to video and images for hours at a time online or on TV. So uh, acute stress is how the body reacts to a traumatic situation. And I, I say this a lot, but trauma is not a bad hair day. doesn't mean that you had a, an argument with somebody or you broke up. Um, that's deeply upsetting. But trauma means that uh, you, you experienced, you encountered, you witnessed, uh, you survived, or you're close to somebody who was directly exposed to um, a, a sudden violent situation in which there was loss of life where people were injured and you were filled with a sense of helplessness and horror. And that combination of helplessness and horror floods us with a, a barrage of stress hormones that uh, is very similar to what people experience with post-traumatic stress. As awful as all of that sounds, is it fair to say these are natural responses or are they learned behaviors? No, these are, these are actually physical responses. They're chemical responses. And uh, that you're, you're, it's a normal, it's a normal reaction. The Red Cross tells people uh, after any kind of a disaster, uh, whatever you're feeling right now, um, overwhelmed, um, you know, scared, panicked, uh, paralyzed, shut down, angry, um, frightened, all of the above. These are no, you're a normal person having normal reactions to an extraordinary or abnormal situation. And I think it's really important to understand that you know this is a this is a cauldron what we're experiencing right now in terms of uh, stress physiology. Um, you know we we are flooded with uh, information. We're flooded with charts and powerpoints and talking heads and images of body bags. You know uh, being uh, hauled out of hospitals or or you know being placed in trucks and people crying and. Um, and health uh, health workers uh, just you know working themselves to the bone, and um, you know people you know people mourning and people who are sick you know f- being absolutely terrified and the sounds of sirens just a cacophony of uh, stimuli and it it just is you know we're all being flooded with uh, I, I said like a cauldron a barrage of stress hormones that affect us physically mentally emotionally, and even spiritually. And in terms of physically, uh, we may find that, that, we, that the mind replays an event or a soundbite or an image uh, or a, a few seconds of video. So we feel that we're re-experiencing it, or you may hear um, you know, the doctor's voice telling you that, uh, yeah, the test results were back and you have COVID-19 or your kid has COVID-19 and your body feels the shock of, of the first time that you were given that news. So it, it's very visceral. It affects your ability to eat. It disturbs sleep. There have been a lot of stories done about pandemic dreams, but dreams uh, and nightmares are the psyche's attempt to make sense of something unthinkable. 
Um, it may be difficult to concentrate. People, including myself, are having difficulty managing time. Every day seems to blend into the next day. You know, we don't really have the um, the structure of going out into the external world. And, you know, Monday we have the morning meeting, and Tuesday is spaghetti night, and Wednesday we go to yoga class. You know, a lot of those uh, markers during the week uh, have been taken away, and we try to supplement or we try to um, recreate that structure with uh, Zoom and with, uh, you know, online activities, but it's not the same. You know, speaking to people who are flat and two-dimensional is not the same as having real in-person experiences with, with other people. And so there's the, you know, everybody's kind of indoors and in a cocoon and getting restless and getting anxious and wanting to go outside and wanting to go to a family barbecue and not wear a mask. And so that impatience and unsettled feeling also adds to the general level of unease and feeling ungrounded, which is also a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned dreams because we have a question in our chat room from Mary Grace who is asking about the fact that there are people reportedly having very vivid dreams that don't usually have them. And she wondered, uh, is what's happening around us with this uh, unprecedented situation, it, is that the cause of it? You kind of answered that there. You, you seem to think it certainly is. Um Sleep disturbances and um, and we call them you know extreme dreams or lucid dreams in which you're aware that you're dreaming uh, vivid dreams in which um, you know there's a there are combinations of normal events uh, kind of superimposed or coexisting with abnormal events uh, for example. Um, you, you may see uh, in your dream, you may, may see an ambulance and then the ambulance door opens and, you know, some kind of cartoon coronavirus, those little, you know, balls with the little red kind of stud things come rolling out of the van like a cartoon. You kind of see your, your psyche plays with these juxtapositions of visuals um, in a way that, that you do remember because this is this is your subconscious way of trying to digest something which is really intolerable and very hard for the conscious logical mind to understand so we we do see a lot more uh, vivid dreams and active dreaming uh, around disasters and i know that there were there were a lot of dreams um, around the time of september 11th and also uh, hurricane sandy as well if these stresses and anxieties are not dealt with in one way or another, how do they affect us long term, particularly uh, emotionally, but also physically? Um, that's a good question. And the general research says, or the, or the research, I say general research, uh, the clinical findings that we have up until now um, tend to tend to report that the initial few months of acute stress. Um, after a mass fatality event, uh, which we're, we're seeing now, that uh, these feelings tend to resolve themselves naturally and on their own um, over over the first few months after the event. Uh, but one of the one of the things that makes this this so different uh, is that if we look at previous disasters, uh, there was a beginning, a middle, and an end to the event. 
even though the the psychological trauma of the event uh, very often goes on for years or may not surface until years later. So, you know, the 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 key to getting through this is to is to really focus on some mind-body relaxation throughout the course of the day where you hit the pause button and instead of focusing on, you know, your, your to-do list or um, what you have to do now or uh, the meeting that's waiting for you in 15 minutes or the fact that uh, your bills have to be paid, to, to take, you know, at least five minutes a day and let your soul catch up. Uh, close your eyes and go back to a place in time when you remembered feeling comfortable and safe because that will reactivate those molecules of emotion and that will kind of give you be giving yourself like a shower or a, a gentle cascade of relaxation hormones that are really the the only real antidote to stress is relaxation and it's very very important for our long-term health that we learn how to engage the relaxation response uh, regularly and periodically so that it becomes a habit like brushing our teeth. And if we can do that, we have a very good chance that, uh, you know, um, uh, of course, un- unless we've had a direct loss or we ourselves were uh, came very close to death's door because of uh, having contracted uh, coronavirus, uh, barring any extreme uh, life and death experience, that affects us directly, uh, we'll probably be able to to manage these surges of stress hormones and kind of get to a uh, healthier baseline naturally and organically. If we try to pretend that this isn't upsetting and we force ourselves to, uh, say, for example, go on a major self-improvement program or we judge ourselves too harshly because we're having a tough time sleeping and we tell ourselves, well, I really, you know, this really shouldn't be affecting me. It's not like I know somebody who's got coronavirus and other people have it worse. You know, we, we have a lot of ways that we make ourselves feel guilty for being upset. It's normal. This is very upsetting. It's troubling. It's scary. It's normal to have all these feelings. If we face them and we name them and we acknowledge that this is a disturbing time and we do something uh, productive to calm ourselves naturally throughout the day, and it could be going out for a walk, it can be hanging out with your pet. It doesn't have to be, you know, some kind of formal meditation or yoga, although those are, are obviously, um, you know, highly recommended. Very often people can't concentrate during times of acute stress. So it's hard to do yoga. It's hard to meditate. Um, anything that you can do to kind of chill for five moments, five minutes at a time and do it every day and try to work up to four five minute relaxation pauses uh, in the course of the day will help your body to reset itself organically and naturally. We know that uh, behavior and experiences rewire our brains and memories and learned experiences. All this stuff changes the way our brain forms physically. Does stress and anxiety have that same effect on the human brain? Um, It can. Um, I know that post-traumatic stress is a, it, it can it, it certainly affects our ability to focus and think clearly. Um, 
I, I haven't read any specific uh, research on the structure of the brain, but I know that it does change brain physiology because of the way the trauma molecules can get reactivated. Um, I, I know that, uh, you know, there, there are pharmaceuticals and herbs, and um, I've got a postdoctoral uh, uh, diploma in clinical homeopathy uh, where I've, I've learned more than a dozen natural, safe, homeopathic medicines or remedies for different types of anxiety. So I know that, you know, rebalancing the brain chemistry when you are experiencing anxiety is really important. And a lot of the anxiety medications that psychiatrists prescribe, they, they work very well, but they're potentially addictive. And so um, I think it's important to be aware of finding ways to naturally rebalance your brain chemistry when you're under a lot of stress. We had a question, another question in chat about uh, healing effects of stress. Do, does any such thing exist? Can stress be uh, constructive and it, can it be healing in any way? You know, that's a great question. Years ago, I did a story for Men's Fitness on, on stress. And there was a study of uh, archers uh, in Arizona. They were training training for the state, tra- state championship. And what the study found was that people who were too relaxed did, had poor results, whereas people who felt a little bit of or, or just enough stress and anxiety about their performance performed better. So um, I remember a friend of mine told me that when he, um, when he left California and he had to get a New York State driver's license, um, he didn't bother to study for the exam because he, would just, uh, he was totally chill and he thought everything was going to be fine and he didn't really need to read the book. And he was so relaxed that he failed the exam. And he had to take it again. And so I think that there is such, there, there is such a thing as healthy stress. And I think that um, you know when when you when you have a workout program or um, you know you, you you decide that you're going to change your eating patterns or you're going to do something um, slightly different because remember that stress is how the body reacts to change and and you stress you stress is healthy stress. Um, I can share with you. I I had a public speaking phobia for many years, and uh, when my first book came out. Uh, somebody said something very nice to me, so I can't wait to see you on TV. Uh, I started to cry, I burst into tears, and I locked myself in the bathroom for half an hour. My husband was going to call the police to get me out. I mean, I, I was complete. I was, a, I was like a phobic basket case, like you see in the movies. Wow. And uh, and learning how to um, heal and release those fears and to to overcome that phobia, um, it was was a very positive stressor. Uh, for me, and even though there are times when I stand up in front of a group and I can feel that stress and anxiety, and sometimes I'll even get stage fright in front of a group, but yet the 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 accomplishment of working through that stress um, produces a positive stress flow that uh, I find very healing. We're going to go. We're going to go to break here in just a moment. But before we do, I just want to clarify something that you talked about pretty significantly. And you talked about catastrophe or disaster-related stress versus normal stress. Does it have different effects on us? You you mentioned things like PSTD, and um, I assume that means yes. The the answer is yes. But can you give us a better sense of the differences? Um, well, you know, 
I, I think that when we're talking about PTSD and acute stress, go back to the, the core definition, which is a sense of helplessness and horror. You cannot prevent something from happening that is going to take somebody's life or has the potential to take somebody's life, like a killer storm, for example, or, as I said, uh, a near miss on a highway. So uh, it really has to do with coming face-to-face with life and death. And I think one of the things that shakes us to our core when that happens is that we're also coming face-to-face with our own mortality, and uh, and that produces the kind of physical reactions that are uh, similar or identical to what first responders go through and uh, firefighters go through and uh, combat veterans go through because uh, they are going to work to deal with sudden violent events in which there's death involved. And I think that, 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 that that's a, there's, a, there's an intensity and there's, there are, and we can talk about it later, there are specific physical, mental, and emotional reactions to these life and death uh, encounters, if you will, that are uh, severe, they're extreme, and uh, they, they can be debilitating if we don't recognize them and uh, try to address them. You've got many books. We've been uh, kind of referencing the five gifts and also sixth sense, uh, Lori. But if someone was new to your work, is it one of those books you recommend they start with uh, to become familiar with what you do and how to approach your work, or is it one of the other ones? You know, I I think that the these these two books uh, are really classics. Uh, sixth sense, unlocking your ultimate mind power, was the first book to talk about intuition as a natural mental ability and i was the first um i was the first person to report on the uh, pentagon secret psychic espionage program and uh it's which i'm sure that your viewers are familiar with the remote viewing program yeah, of course. that started in the uh, late 70s early 80s and i i interviewed a number of the people who were um involved in uh the original research and uh setting up the operation of what became known as uh project stargate um so it, it's um, it's a book that has a lot of exercises for developing your intuition. And what made it unusual, uh, and I think it's still unusual for uh, that genre of book, is that, A, there was no New Age section of the bookstore, so there was nothing like it at the time. And it was the only book and one of the few books that that doesn't require that you believe in anything you don't have to believe in uh, metaphysics. You don't have to believe in a higher power um, any more than you have to believe in your ability to learn how to add and subtract because intuition is a natural ability that everybody has, um, and it's the same. It's a similar ability, I should say, to, say, artistic ability or athletic ability or mathematical ability. It just it tends to be um, undervalued um, in our education system because it's difficult to quantify, and so they don't usually. Um, if you're the if you're the kind of kid who um, can get the right answer to a long division problem, but you can't show the steps, uh, you, your teacher will usually accuse you of cheating. But in fact, um, as, as part of the research for the book, I spoke to an educator who had done brainwave studies with, I think, sixth graders. 
and they found that some sixth graders, uh, when they were forced to do long division with the steps, uh, the their brain waves would would go into an agitated state uh, for both left and right brains or left and right hemispheres of the brain. Uh, when they were allowed to just naturally and organically solve the problem uh, the way they normally did it without any judgment, their brain waves went into a more harmonic, relaxed state, like an, what they call an alpha state. And uh, what they found is that, in fact, um, Albert Einstein, who was uh, someone who valued his intuition, um, had uh, he had a daydream that he was riding on a beam of light, and when he woke up from the daydream, he had returned to his point of origin. Now, if he was a regular guy like you know most of us, a regular person, he would have said, hmm, "You know that was a really weird daydream. I think I'm going to have a cold one and watch the game." But he was Albert, so he spent the next uh, I don't know how many years mathematically proving that what he saw in that daydream, in that altered state, was actually mathematically provable. That the, And that became the law of relativity that uh, modern science has uh, has been based on uh, for, until very, very recently when physics has branched out beyond uh, Einstein's theory of relativity. But that, that was like a breakthrough and a turning point for Western science. Now, in... Autopsy, autopsy studies of Einstein's brain shows that most of us or all of us have a little ridge between the left and right hemispheres. Einstein's brain didn't have that ridge, which meant that he was able, the brain was able to pass numerical data over from the left brain over to the right brain. The right brain synthesizes numerical data. It synthesizes visual data, and it comes up with the right answer by showing you a picture of the correct number so that kids who get the right answer without doing the steps are actually using an unconscious process or an intuitive process where the numbers are being passed, if you will, or or directed over to the right brain, and the right brain kind of does a, a very rapid synthesis of the numerical information, and it flashes a picture of the right number um, into your mind's eye, and that feels right, and so that's that's the answer to the long division problem. Well, traditional schools don't recognize this as a valid intellectual process, and so kids learn that it's not okay to, to use their intuition. It's not okay to value that part of them that knows knowing without knowing how you know is, is really what we call our sixth sense or intuition. And uh, so, you know, we learn to turn it off. And, in fact, in studies that uh, have been done of kids between the ages of 8 and 12, they find that uh, 44% of kids tend to trust their sixth sense as a way of getting information about the world. But by the time they they give this uh, same questionnaire to the adult population, only 25% of us now trust our intuition because it's been conditioned out of us. We've been punished for it.
we don't get rewarded for it. And so that, that's, that's, I think, is, is one of the reasons why so many adults and young people want to reopen their intuitive abilities because it's something that was natural to them. It's like when we used to take kids who were left-handed and tie their left hand behind their back or hit their left hand with a ruler when they were trying to write, it kind of punishing them for something that they do naturally and organically. Um, in that in that sense, that's what we do to kids who are naturally intuitive. And so um, in my book, Sixth Sense, I talk about um, um, the brain you took to school and what happens to kids who are naturally intuitive and how we can really um, look at intuition differently and encourage it. And it has a lot of exercises that you can use to develop your own sixth sense which is now an audio book, which I, I highly recommend because it's like having your own uh, private sixth sense workshop. Let's talk about emotional first aid. What is emotional first aid and what are the tools? Emotional first aid is a term that I've come up with to uh, for a number of techniques that I've developed that work very, very quickly. They work within seconds to take the edge off uh, stress, to diffuse panic, and to relieve anxiety. And uh, one of the uh, f- one of the basic techniques that uh, I've taught to first responders and teachers in Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, and I actually demonstrate it. If you go to uh, my website, laurienadel.com, and you scroll down to, uh, there's a video clip from C- uh, CBS News, and I'll actually be demonstrating one of these techniques where you cross your hands over your chest and you, you gently tap. Um, you're actually tapping over your lungs, and lungs are uh, the center of grief in Chinese medicine. So as you're tapping uh, very gently with your arms crossed, it's called butterfly hugs, and it's very, very soothing, and it takes the edge off stress and anxiety like, like right away within, within seconds, calms your heartbeat. It probably also lowers your blood pressure, although I've never actually taken a before and, and after blood pressure um, uh, test. But, uh, yeah, I would say um, butterfly hugs are a great emotional first aid tool. Another one is when you're feeling anxious and you're feeling stressed, uh, locate where in your body you're feeling the most tension and focus your attention, like say it's a tightness in your chest or a tightness, a weird feeling in your stomach. Um, Ask that part of your body, like ask your stomach, what color do you need to feel better? And without second-guessing yourself, whatever color comes into your mind, just breathe it in and feel that color, that wavelength of color, finding its way into the areas of your body that's feeling uh, uh, tense or tight or in pain or stressed. And as this color, you know, kind of hitches a ride on the oxygen molecules, finds its way um, into those areas that are stressed out, um, you can feel them relaxing. You'll feel the stress releasing almost immediately. And then as you exhale, you can release any tension or uncomfortable feeling or sensation by breathing out a different color. So it's inhale a soothing color and, and, and release um, any disturbing feeling or any stress as you exhale a different color. And that will take the edge off uh, any kind of stress or anxiety, again, within just a few seconds. And, and those are not, you know, 
you know, people have said to me, well, those are Band-Aids. Those are not going to get into the deeper feelings of stress or grief or loss, uh, but they will help you to, uh, it it will prevent the uh, escalation of uh, acute stress. It it will prevent you from panicking, and uh, it will prevent uh, the feelings of helplessness from overwhelming you. So these are two excellent tools. They're very practical, and they work within seconds. Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, you know, we know how important first first aid is if there's a physical injury, an accident, and you're bleeding, whatever it happens to be. Uh, um, Performing first aid at that point right away can prevent some very long-term negative effects, maybe even death. Um, How important is it to apply these emotional and these stress-related first aid tools at the moment you're feeling that stress or that anxiety? Is is it the same as as what we just described for a physical injury? Absolutely. Um, I think it also, you know, it we we have a tendency to to kind of push through or ignore or or deny that we're really feeling very upset at a particular moment and um you know sometimes you'll take you you'll want to have a drink you'll want to have a cigarette you'll want to uh you know want to have a you know you want to smoke some weed or you know you want to have some coffee you know something to either pick you up or to calm you down and um you know i I'm not saying that that those aren't you know effective ways of kind of taking the edge off, but in the moment, in the exact moment that you realize that you're feeling scared or you're feeling helpless, and remember, helplessness is the criteria for acute stress and and for post traumatic stress. It's it's there's a situation that's out of your control and it's troubling, and it's potentially um, threatening to your survival. And this includes um, economic survival as well. If you can recognize that you're feeling scared and helpless in the moment, and you can use one of these tools to kind of help your your body and mind to calm down, um, that's going to give you more sustained energy so that you can make survival decisions. Uh, You're going to need to to be making survival decisions under stress. And so it's like putting a Band-Aid when you're bleeding or putting on a tourniquet if you're severely bleeding. Um, These techniques can help to save your life uh, psychologically and sometimes even physically. You also have a book called uh, The Five Gifts and uh, Discovering Hope, Healing, and Strength When Disaster Strikes. Let's talk about The Five Gifts a bit. First of all, how did this concept um, come to you? What, What brought it to you? Was it just an epiphany, or did you actually put it into practice and learn it as you did it? Well, um, you know, in the book, I, I write about how I, I lost my, my home of some 20 years uh, to Hurricane Sandy in 2012. And, uh, you know, as terrible as uh, seeing everything you've built be destroyed in like 15 or 20 minutes, uh, the aftermath of uh, dealing with uh, unscrupulous uh, vendors and uh, dealing with, uh, you know, the government and dealing with the bank that seizes your settlement check and then refuses to give you your money and, um, you know, dealing with uh, insurance companies and, I mean, just to, it, just the bureaucratic nightmare of uh, trying, to, um, trying to survive. 
Uh, it, it can be very debilitating. It goes on for a very long time. And because I, I had uh, led a program for teenagers whose fathers were killed in the World Trade Center for a few years, I, I knew that people in my community on this barrier island uh, would need, again, they would need specialized long-term support, and they would need tools, and they would, they would need to, to form um, a community of, uh, uh, for emotional support. And uh, and yet at the same time, I mean, I was I was having a very difficult time navigating the um, the horror of uh, what happens after a natural disaster. And so one day I decided that I would just hit the pause button and I wouldn't answer any phone calls or faxes or emails about the uh, you know about the aftermath of, or the rebuilding. Um, and I was just going to treat myself the same way I would tell my patients uh, to treat themselves, and I would just take 48 hours and just relax, uh, you know, take take a bath, take a walk, get a massage, uh, meditate. And as I was meditating, um, I, I heard an inner voice uh, whisper these five words, which were humility, patience, empathy, forgiveness, and growth. And this inner voice, which may be um, an angelic voice, it may be a higher power, it may be my higher self. I, I don't know where this wisdom comes from, but it doesn't come from me. I mean, it's not my conscious self. Uh, this was way beyond uh, uh, anything that I could have thought of for myself at the time. And this inner voice guided me to write down these five words and said that these are the gifts that will help you to heal and recover and to please share them with other people uh, who are going through loss and sudden severe loss. And um, so as I, as I decided a while later to write, write a book that would help people to get through the, the kind of long and winding journey of recovering from disasters, because whether we like it or not, disasters are increasing in intensity and frequency, and we're living in a very turbulent cycle right now. Uh, whether these are man-made disasters, like mass shootings, uh, whether these are environmental disasters, uh, like uh, toxic spills of some kind, or um, uh, uh, during Hurricane Sandy, the storm surge wiped out, uh, destroyed the town's sewage treatment pump. And so when the tide receded and the water left uh, the island, uh, everything was covered in raw sewage. So it was an environmental disaster as well as a natural disaster. We've seen an increase in natural disasters, wildfires, wildfires, hurricanes, tornadoes. We're living in very volatile times and we need a different mindset because we're used to things being placid and stable. That's what we used to call normal. And now we're, we, 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 need different, we need different mental tools. We need different spiritual uh, values in order to get through long, complicated periods of hardship. And so these five gifts, as I started to interview people and do research for the five gifts, I found that, in fact, these five gifts, humility, patience, empathy, forgiveness, and growth, are 
found in many of the world's uh, religious traditions and spiritual traditions, and in many, many different cultures around the world, um, from European cultures to indigenous cultures to uh, South American and African and Asian and Asian cultures as well. And uh, we really have an opportunity now to kind of rewire our thinking so that instead of feeling victimized and feeling, why me, why did this have to happen to me, and uh, when, are, when are we going to go back to normal, to understand that hardship is part of the human journey and that what's happening to us now has been happening, you know, in one form or another to people, you know, going back, you know, thousands and thousands of years. There have been epidemics. There was the influenza epidemic of 1918, which millions of people died. And that in any lifetime, there are going to be periods of hardship and periods of ease and cycles of good harvests and cycles of food shortages and cycles of war and cycles of peace. And it's just life. And most of us, you know, and in fact, just about everybody who goes through this human journey will experience a cycle of hardship. And how we get through this heart, these hardships uh, determine, I think, uh, who we become as we grow and as, as, we, as we go through the rest of our lives. And so having these five gifts, I think, really um, takes um, a lot of the pain out of the journey and allows us to endure um, unexpected uh, unexpected difficulties like uh, what we're going through now. I know it takes a while to recover from these types of stresses and anxieties. And if you use the methods that you just outlined and you find ways to help mitigate their effects and speed the recovery, how long can it take? And do you ever fully recover from these things? You know, that's that's a great question. Um, the, the research shows that, um, anecdotal research shows, that a third of people... Um, is kind of like a third, a third, and a third. A third of people will recover, but from time to time we'll get triggered. I include myself in that third. Uh, we'll, we'll get triggered um, to have a flashback in which you feel as though, uh-oh, it's happening again. I, I feel paralyzed. I feel helpless. I feel overwhelmed. Uh, I, feel, I feel scared. Um, and uh, it will, it will, it's like the body will be reminded this is what it felt like um, during the COVID 19 lockdown, and uh, it, it will, um, it will reactivate those molecules of trauma. Um, a third of people will heal completely, and they will use the experience or the event or series of events as a springboard to uh, to catalyze growth and to find a spiritual purpose and meaning for, and direction for the rest of their lives so that they will look back on the event and say, you know, I wish it had never happened to me. I would never wish it on anybody else, but I wouldn't be who I am today if it hadn't, if I hadn't learned what I learned as a result of going through that. Um, and then you have a third of people uh, who will never really recover and who will who will struggle um, for the rest of their lives uh, to to um, to to be able to get back to a healthy baseline. You've uh, 
termed patience as one of the five gifts as the unbearable gift. What does that mean, and, and why is it important now? Don't you want this to be over yesterday? <laughs> yes, the answer is an emphatic I mean, yes. <laughs> I mean, I do. I mean, who doesn't? Right. We are a very impatient culture, and uh, and that's why patience is the unbearable gift. And, you know, some people will find that uh, even though they may be going back to work, that uh, when when they when they hear an ambulance, I know after nine eleven, you'd hear an ambulance go down the street, and everybody would freeze for a couple of years. It was like we were playing a game of freeze, like kids, and we'd look at each other, and people would be like frozen in mid step, and then everybody would kind of shrug and look embarrassed. But um, you know, uh, patience is the gift that helps us endure the fact that we're still hurting. It can be months from now. It can it can come back years from now. And the fact is, we're now in a situation that's going to be a long and winding and slow road into um, a, a different kind of awareness and stability. You know, we never go back. People say one of things is going to go back to normal. Uh, this is going to be an imprint in the collective psyche. Uh, probably for the rest of our lives, where we will refer back to it the way we refer back to September 11th. And we say, before 9-11, right. um, where were you at the time of 9-11 and since 9-11? And we will refer to our life path as before the pandemic, during lockdown, and since the pandemic or since since the vaccine or or um, or since COVID nineteen, and it's going to be a marker, I think, in the consciousness of humanity. So patience is the gift that is going to help us tolerate the slowness and the erratic kind of uh, oh look we're out of lockdown and uh oh here comes the second wave and here comes lockdown again. Patience is the gift that will get us through these uh, ups and downs and very difficult periods of confinement. We have a question in our chat room about children and the fact that uh, there have actually been reported suicides related to what's going on of kids, of children, um, young teenagers and the like. What can we do to help kids through a time like this? And maybe they don't have the same tools available to them to cope with these stresses. You know, I, I think that's also a wonderful question, and it's cultural because um, I've spoken to people and I have interviews with people in the Five Gifts who grew up um, as children during World War II, or they grew up in uh, areas where there were um, earthquakes every day on the way to school, and you know they would they would uh, they would see bodies trapped in rubble, and you know, they would hear people screaming, and um, and I would ask them, you know, what what did your parents teach you that helps you to get through this? And one of the things that uh, parents can teach children is what I just said, is that in any period of, of life, there are hardships and that life isn't always fun. And that the important thing is that your family is here for you. And the important thing is that we'll get through it together. And that if there's anything you need, I'm your mom or I'm your dad, and I'll do whatever I can um, you know, to, to, to be here for you and that we can count on each other when things get tough, because life by its nature is uncertain, and sometimes there are tough times, 
and um, and it's important to know that you know that that you have the resources that you need that you you have support you have resilience uh, you you have people around you who care about you and that um, you know this this is going to be something that you look back on and will understand that there were important lessons that you learned so I, I think the key to um, helping kids is to reinforce the values of togetherness and and especially empathy, which is the gift that keeps us connected and keeps us courageous. You kind of touched on it there, but, uh, you know, one of the things that you hear during the course of your life is some adults saying, you know, adversity builds character and, and, and these difficult times are learning experiences. How much of that is true? And if we handle these stresses right, can they ultimately have a bit of a silver lining in the fact that we learn important lessons and we actually become stronger as a result? Well, again, I think it's, you know, two-thirds of people will become stronger as a result and will learn and, um, you know, will look back and say, well, you know, I wish I didn't have to learn these lessons, but um, I'm a stronger person or I'm a kinder person as a result of that. Um, I, I think that, you know, whether or not you are able to find that silver lining depends to a certain amount on your, your temperament, on your culture, and what kind of uh, resources and support you have going through these particular events. And it's very encouraging to see that, uh, you know, as a nation, uh, how the importance of empathy is being, you know, emphasized and reemphasized. And you see the coming together and the messages that, you know, we'll get through it together, that, that uh, even though we're all uh, kind of, in, you know, and under stay-at-home order, orders, that we're able to really be here for each other, that at 7 o'clock at night, uh, people all over the country go out on their balconies and they play music and they cheer for the healthcare workers and the first responders who are out there on the front lines. Um, I think that, that the, uh, the growth of empathy as a, as a shared value is one of the things that makes the difference between coming through it and finding a silver lining or coming through it and being shattered and devastated and, and never really being able to put the pieces back together. We all have um, a lot of relearning to do. And in fact, today I went to the store, a store I actually had to drive to. Uh, usually I can walk to the store and I took my son and the two of us went to the store and we realized we really didn't know how to act in public anymore. We we'd been we've been basically locked up or not locked up, but certainly isolated for the better part of a month or more. And uh, suddenly going out into a, a more public place, it feels very very awkward. I imagine when we come out of this, we're all going to have that anxiety too. How do we act a, a, around each other? How do we interact with people? I know we're not supposed to shake hands. That's gonna you know. There's a whole bunch of weirdness that's going to come out of this apart from just dealing with the uh, isolation itself? Well, I, I think that there's going to be uh, a certain amount of social anxiety. Um, some people will be germophobic for a very long time, and um, probably I've, I've had a few people tell me, that they probably will never leave their house or leave their apartment again. That they, you know they they actually like feeling enfolded and, and staying home. 
I know that, um, you know, people who are veterans who come back from uh, conflict situations or anybody who's been through a long period of illness um, has a difficult, has difficulty, can have difficulty reintegrating socially because we lose our social skills and people may even have social anxiety or social phobias and, and social skills can be relearned. Uh, we're going to have to learn new social skills because uh, we're going to be kind of averse to shaking hands or hugging or, you know, theoretically passing on, uh, you know, contagion. Uh, but uh, but eventually, I think that uh, we, we'll go back to uh, shaking hands and, and hugging and um, not having to wear masks all the time. But it's going to take a while. It is going to take a while. It is going to take yeah. a while, and that brings us back to being patient again, right? I mean, that's yeah, part of right. the magic of that word. Um, what, as we sum this up, um, Laurie, what else can we learn? Be learning during this time, and how can we be more productive with the time that we have that we're forced in this social distancing and maybe some type of isolation? Can we make put it to use and take advantage of it and make it productive? I think. You know, we're all kind of suffering from fund deficiency syndrome, I call it FDS. And, um, you know, this is not a time, I think, I think we're all going through a form of traumatic grief because, uh, I say that, that, you know, when we're, when we, we've had a loss or we're going through a disaster, uh, we, we get to meet three elephants. And the three elephants are the loss of control because we can't stop this from happening. The loss of safety because we feel more vulnerable and we're afraid of the contagion. Uh, we're afraid to leave our houses, uh, so there's a loss of safety. We feel more fragile. And the third is the loss of identity, where we'll say to you know, who am I um, if I can't go to work, or who am I if uh, somebody somebody called me the other day? Who am I if I can't go to the sports bar and watch the Red Sox? I mean, uh, my brother's a baseball announcer. You know, who am I if there are no games to announce? And so we go through. You know, we meet these three elephants uh, along the way, and we grieve the loss of control and the loss of safety and the loss of identity and the loss of the things that we did in the course of the week and the people who we met, the people who were our, we interacted with at work or um, at church or in our families, our social support, um, you know, the baseball team that we uh, played with on Wednesday nights or the yoga class or the uh, the, uh, the the church choir, you know, we're, we're missing all of those uh, structures that that gave our lives meaning and uh, and engagement. And I think that um, what we need to do uh, for ourselves now is not so much go on a self improvement program uh, as much as it is to kind of ease off on uh, giving ourselves more tasks to do. And just try to relax and have fun because, you know, we need to laugh every day if we can. I try to laugh at myself at least once a day. Um, <laughs> try to laugh. Um, you know, try to you know spend time, talk to a friend you haven't seen in a long time. Um, hang out with your pet, you know, go out in the garden, um, take a walk, enjoy the fact that it's springtime. And I think also focus on just as as we're living in, in spring now, that spring is a time when we have new growth and we have new life. And even after this long period 
of uh, illness and death. We will have rebirth and regrowth, and we will have new life because that is also part of the cycle of life and the cycle of nature. Dr. Nadel, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Once again, let people know where they can get a hold of your books and find out more information about your work. Well, thank you. My website is laurienadel.com, and uh, you can contact me through my website. And uh, my book, The Five Gifts, is, and uh, the, the audio book of Sixth Sense are also available on Amazon.com. And uh, I really recommend the, uh, the audio book version of Sixth Sense, and I hope you'll check out The Five Gifts on Kindle because it was written specifically to help you get through um, times of disaster and, and a long, complicated period of hardship, which we're going through together now. It is exactly that, a long period of hardship. And uh, when we come out of this current round, I'm sure we're going to see more of it. And we're going to have to remember these lessons that you've uh, given us tonight. But thank you again for being here. Look forward to having you back on the show at some point. Thank you. I would love that. Thank you so much. Great questions. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.